Amen. What a wonderful time of song. Uh, thank you, Seth, Sasha, and Aaron. We, man, what a beautiful reminder, right? Lord is our salvation. The Lord is our salvation. I'm happy to be with you all this morning, happy to worship together this Memorial Day weekend. As Pastor Brandon said, we, we acknowledge that there are many that have given their lives for our country. And if you have a family member or you know someone that has, then we, we're with you in prayer and we're thankful for your family's sacrifice. Uh, we're going to continue our uh, series in this Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, in Philippians. And today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. Philippians 4, 2 through 7. This passage that we get to look at today <clears throat> is a very practical passage. It's very applicable, as this letter has been to us all. Uh, probably could have just came up, read this for us, and said, there we go. Uh, go. Go in peace. Benediction. We're gone. But I'm excited about this. Uh, it spoke to me this week as I, I always pray that the Lord will uh, first uh, speak to me through the word uh, that, um, that I'm preparing to, to preach. And uh, it definitely has. It's been encouraging and challenging uh, all together. So let's read this together. Philippians 4, 2 through 7. I'm going to read from the ESV. Uh, we'll read this. I will read this. Uh, read this. Then I'll pray. We'll ask God to help us as we look at his text. That's the Spirit for his help. Philippians 4, verse 2, reads this. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Uh, Father God, we, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you as we sit under the authority of your word. May it encourage us. May it challenge us. May it compel us to live a life that is 
worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Father, we need your help. I need your help. So we ask for your spirit to move in the hearts to change us, that we would leave different than we walked in. What we know not, what would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, would you give us? By your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Now we all know that navigating this journey called life uh, is not always easy, right? There are ups, there are downs, there's hardships, there's difficulties, there are struggles, there are sorrows. And there, in those difficulties, in those times that we navigate this journey, uh, we all share our, uh, our, our portion of turmoil, trials, pain. Each and every one of us, have, if you've been around for any amount of time, you, you, you've had struggles, you've had turmoil. And there's a very, very simple reason for this. It's a three-letter word, and it's called sin. See, we feel the effects of living in a sinful and broken world. And I use the term broken because the world as we know it is not exactly how God originally created it, right? Uh, What we have now is not how God intended it. If you remember during the creation narrative in Genesis 1, uh, two times God says, he, he looks at everything that he's made, and he says, good. When he makes hum- his humans, his imago day, he says, it's very good. This is a good thing. And then we know that enters the serpent, Satan tempts Adam and Eve to disobey God, and unfortunately they follow Satan's lead instead of God's lead, and they rebel against their creator. And because of their rebellion against holy God, there are consequences, right? We talked a little bit last week about consequences. And the consequences that happen in uh, Genesis 3 are drastic. They've affected every single human being ever since. Um, I want you to think of it like this. Has anyone ever built, made a puzzle, right? Ever put a puzzle together? Uh, my grandmother used to like uh, doing puzzles. And some people like do these really elaborate puzzles, these big, huge puzzles. They spend weeks uh, putting together, maybe months. And... Uh, when they get done with the puzzle, usually what they do is they, they, they sit back and they admire their work, right? They, they see the pieces that they've put together. Now, just imagine you were making a puzzle. You had spent weeks, months, however long on it, and all of a sudden, here comes someone and just, they wreck it, right? They, they, they tear the pieces apart. They take every piece and they they throw it around and it becomes chaotic and disordered. And it's not exactly how it was intended to be. And see, that's what we have here. 
that's what we have in this world. We have this beautiful creation that has been disrupted and turned upside down by sin. And it's helpful for us to grasp this reality because it will help us as we navigate the life that we have been given. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, the Christian has a great advantage over other men. He says, not by being less fallen than they are, nor less doomed to live in a fallen world, but by knowing that he is a fallen man in a fallen world. See, when you, you understand ourselves in the world around us, it helps us to make sense of the chaos. It helps us to understand, okay, well, things aren't exactly how they're supposed to be. Now, by God's grace, we see pale glimpses of the true intended beauty of creation. But listen, brothers and sisters, everything that we enjoy now is only a minimal fraction of the beauty that will be displayed in eternity with God in the new heavens and new earth. But here we are. We're in the present. We deal with the chaos of this world because the world and our bodies are infected with sin and it affects our lives. Today in our text, we're reminded that we aren't the first ones that had to feel the effects of living in a fallen world. And thankfully, Apostle Paul provides instruction for us as God's people, helping us to press on in this life as we follow Jesus to glory. In this portion of this letter, we're going to see two things going on. One, we see an external situation of disunity between two Christians. So there's this external situation that we will see in verses 2 and 3. And then the second thing that we see is an internal situation. We see Paul, he commands his reader to rest in the peace of God in all circumstances. So there's an external situation, relational dynamic. And then we see this, him speaking to an internal conflict that we all can relate to. I mean, have you ever had a disagreement with another brother or sister in Christ? You probably have. Have you ever been discontent in this life or anxious about anything? Yeah, probably this morning, yesterday, the day before. We all have, right? I mean, it's a part of the human experience. It has been since the beginning of time. So let's look at this text, and let's look at this first situation of disunity between these two Christians, and we'll look at how Paul addresses this. Look at verses 2 and 3. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So what we see here are two prominent women in the church. 
We see that they're having some type of disagreement that is causing issues with the church at large. Now, look, we don't know exactly what the disagreement is. It it, it doesn't give us that. But what we do know is that it's bad enough for Paul to rebuke them publicly. He rebukes them publicly in this letter. Now, this public rebuke tells us a few things. I want to look at these for just a moment. One, it tells us that it must have been well known in the church, that they must have known what was going on. Uh, This wasn't likely some small disagreement or a spat between someone that was dealing with something that was insignificant individually. Apparently, for Paul to address this as he does, it was having major effects. Um, They had probably, the church had probably had likely uh, many conversations surrounding this. Epaphroditus likely had told Paul about it when he comes to visit Paul in prison. For those that don't know, Paul is in prison when he crafts this letter. Epaphroditus comes, he visits him. Paul tells him about, hey, this is, this is still lingering in the church and it's causing conflict. It's a big deal. Tension within the body of Christ is a big deal. We're called to be unified in Christ, which we will see here in a moment. The second thing that we must note in this portion of the text is that it's obvious that Paul had developed deep roots of love for this body of believers. He loved this church. Look, you don't say this type of thing to someone that you don't care about. You don't call things out and help brothers and sisters along that you don't care about. I love how commentator Moses Silva puts it. He says, one does not take risks of this sort unless one can depend on a thick cushion of love and trust to absorb the impact of rebuke. And Paul cared for this body of believers. He loved this church. We've, we've seen this over and over in the text. I mean, this begs the question for us as a church, are we truly building the types of relationships that can absorb this type of hard conversation? I mean, are we truly loving one another? Are we just showing up on Sundays, singing some songs, giving a couple of uh, tidbits of our week just to say we did something? Are we truly building relationships that are full of love? Third thing we see is that Paul must have considered these women mature enough to handle this type of admonition. These ladies must have been mature. I mean, it takes a certain level of maturity to allow others to speak truth into our lives. It takes a certain level of maturity to have someone speak to us, call us out when we're 
doing something wrong and not just lash out in response. Question we must ask ourselves, are we growing in maturity? Are we growing in maturity? Do we uh, allow others to know who know and love you and want the best for you to offer direction and insight when you are wrong? Are you allowing people to speak into your life? I mean, it takes a level of vulnerability, but it takes a level of maturity. I mean, look, it's hard for any of us to get called out. Let's be honest. We don't like correction. We don't like uh, being told that, like, something we're doing is, is unpleasing to the Lord. Um, I remember when our, our two-year-old Titus when he first started to kind of understand that he was being corrected and understood, like, okay, I mean, you could just say anything to him, like, hey, hey, buddy, you probably shouldn't, like, face plant off of the, the couch, right? Like, let's, let's not jump off the couch. Um, I mean, he would just, I mean, he'd lose it, right? You say anything. I mean, just lose it. He would just, literally, he would fall on the ground. He still does it sometimes. He's growing in maturity at, at two and a half now. But he literally would just like fall on the ground and just lose it. I mean, you could say it with a smile, but any sense of correction, he just hated. And we, we all, right, that's inherent. We, we have that. We do not like correction. We don't want people to, to say, hey, brother, sister, I've seen patterns in your life that I love you enough to make this conversation pretty awkward right now. And to talk to you about it. Because I care about your walk with the Lord. Now I'm not saying that everyone is always right every single time they may try to correct you. Or that everyone should just go around correcting everyone every time that they, they see something that they don't like. We troll in everything, right? The application here is that we should all be mature enough to humbly consider the words that may confront us and challenge us to make changes in our lives when it comes from people who love us. We should always encourage that. We should want that. We should want to grow in maturity. And by God's grace, he uses the church to do that. I mean, we must notice here the Paul, that Paul calls even another person to get involved here. He says, help these women and their issues. In verse 3, he calls on his true companion to help. Now, we don't know exactly who the true companion is. Uh, many scholars have different ideas about that. The text doesn't tell us, and it's, it's really not that important for our time. But the point here is that there is corporate responsibility that we have to one another as we navigate this life. I mean, there's a plethora of different experiences, backgrounds. Just in this group of probably 75 people. I mean, so many different experiences that are represented here. And it's a beautiful thing that you can likely go to someone in this small gathering that can relate to what you're going through. can walk with them, and we should walk with them. We should ask for help. We should want help. 
Uh, In chapter 6 of the letter to the Galatians, Paul again makes the same point, to involve the community around an individual. Now, what I'm about to read, they're they're speaking a little bit more towards uh, someone falling into sin. Uh, Our text doesn't necessarily say that uh, these two women were sinning, but the principle is still the same here. We see this corporate involvement that we should all take serious. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 of Galatians says this. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, as Christ has bore our ultimate burden, we now have the opportunity to bear one another's. He's taken what you could never take. He's done what you could never do. He's taken what you deserve. He dies the death that you deserve, so you get the life that you don't deserve. Now and for eternity. I mean, Paul's making his point clear here. He says the Christian life is a team sport. It's not individual. We pursue holiness together. And when one of us stumbles, we stop and we help each other along the way. We journey together. Look, I don't expect our church to be perfect. Actually, it's when when it's like a quiet week, I actually get a little nervous, right? I'm like, what's going on? No one's reached out. No one needs anything. Like, What's happening here? Where are they running to? God doesn't expect us to be perfect either, right? There is no room in Scripture for a perfect now theology. It's not going to happen. It doesn't exist. But what does exist in Scripture is a constant pursuit of growth as we grow in the likeness of Christ through the process of of sanctification. We're being sanctified. The Bible speaks of two types of sanctification. There's a positional. We have been sanctified. We've been set apart as God's people. But then there's a progressive sanctification that as we journey through this life, as we are being prepared for eternity, the presentation of the bride to Christ, we are being made new. And we do that together. Progressive sanctification is made and meant to do together. Paul says, Help these women. Paul says, bear one another's burdens. I mean, the language couldn't be any clearer. We are called to do it together. We also see that these women were gospel-focused women who were invaluable to the church. Paul says, these women have labored side by side with me 
in the gospel together. So let me get one thing clear. Anyone that says women did not play a vital role in the early church isn't reading their Bible. Just like anyone who says there is no distinction of the specific role of men and women in the church isn't reading their Bible. Women have always been and will always be invaluable, indispensable, and crucial to the life of the church. And God has ordained his family to function in a way that both men and women play integral parts. And Paul's words here should remind us of that. I mean, he doesn't speak of these women as if they're some second-class citizens who just happen to be making a fuss and they're just, you know, doing their thing. What women do, it's not his language here. This isn't insignificant. He's not saying like, hey, just get over it so you stop distracting the church. No. They must play a major role in the church at Philippi because if they didn't, Paul wouldn't have done something like this that was so uncommon in a letter to a particular church. There's only one other time in the New Testament uh, epistles where Paul makes a direct um, rebuke or calls someone out by name. Now, the pastoral epistles that are written to a specific individual, that's different. But this is very uncommon for Paul's writing. Paul says that these women are gospel partners. He said they labored with me. They advanced the gospel, and now they need some help working out a disagreement. Here he includes them in the category of his fellow workers. And look, we know that there are some all-stars there, right? Barnabas, Luke, Timothy. Paul says these women need to be reconciled because guess what? Every moment they aren't, their gospel impact is affected. And furthermore, we see that their disunity is not accurately modeling the unity that they actually have in Christ. So while they're disagreeing, their witness is at risk of being tainted, tarnished. Paul says, look, agree in the Lord. He also says that their names are in the book of life. Now, this precise phrase, book of life, occurs a few other times in Scripture. Uh, Revelation 3.5 says this, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Uh, Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life refers to the book which holds the list of those who will receive eternal life. And that's exclusive to those who have salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. In, in Revelation 17, 8, we see that our names being added is not something that happened because of something that we did. This is important here. Rather, it is something that God has done before the foundations of the world. Revelation 17, 8, 
Uh, write this down. Read it later. It says, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, though, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So he says there's some who have been written Their names have been written there from the foundations of the world. There are some that have not. So Paul's argument here is that those who are truly redeemed, those that are saved, those that are washed by the blood of Jesus, should stand together in the fact that they agree in the Lord because Their names are written in the book of life, meaning that, guess what? They're going to spend eternity together. They're saved. They have unity in the Lord. They should have it now. They should have it forever. See, true harmony with one another cannot be found anywhere else outside of true harmony with God. In light of our current cultural climate, we must note that Paul's appeal here is not an appeal to a pseudo-unity and something outside of unity in Christ. He doesn't say, you know, hey, just just have unity because of these factors. Have, Have unity because this, because it looks good to those around us. Peace without the peace of God is no peace at all, brothers and sisters. Agree in the Lord, Paul says. And why? Why should we agree in the Lord? What's his argument here? I mean, he's making an argument. He's he's laying it out pretty clear. He says, because he did the work of saving you and putting your name in the book of life. It is there. They are true Christians. Now agree. Paul moves on, continuing his exhortation here is he reminds his reader that they should be rejoicing instead of quarreling. In short, he says, agree in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. Agree and rejoice. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, as I mentioned, we don't know exactly why Euodia and Syntyche were in disagreement. But after Paul has exhorted them to agree in the Lord, he moves on to tell them, hey, rejoice in the Lord. And this is applicable to everyone reading this letter, hearing this letter be read. And look at Paul's language here. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. (laughs) I mean, he didn't have to add that in. Always, he says. See, Paul's not suggesting some superficial happiness that only manifests itself when things go well. I mean, it's easy to rejoice when things are going our way. And and Paul doesn't leave any room for exceptions. There's no footnotes here. 
There's no asterisk. He doesn't say, rejoice in the Lord always, except for when your day is going bad. He doesn't say, rejoice in the Lord always, except the days that your boss like really gets on your nerves. He doesn't say, rejoice in the Lord always, except when your kids drive you crazy. He doesn't say, except when you don't get the things you want. He doesn't say, except when your circumstances are undesirable. No, brothers and sisters. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. He even says it again in the same sentence. We've got to remember Paul's own circumstances, right? (laughs) Paul's not laid up in some uh, palace, sipping wine and eating grapes. He's in the penitentiary, prison, whatever you want to call it. He's locked up. I won't do my Akon reference. Some of y'all went right over your head. It's all right. Remember Paul's own circumstances, right? I mean, Paul could be down and out about his situation. I mean, he could be sulking and asking for a pity party. He could be just, I mean, he, could, he, he didn't have to spend the time that he did writing this letter the way he did. There's a lot of other things that he could have asked for. There's a lot of different things that, that he could have uh, told them in light of his current situation. Then we also know that the church in Philippi, I mean, they're facing opposition themselves. Uh, it's not just a heyday for them. They're not in their glory days. They're facing opposition from all sides. And Paul doesn't coddle these brothers and sisters. He doesn't say like, yeah, you deserve, you've you've had a rough week, you've had a rough go at it, you really deserve it. Paul doesn't coddle them. He doesn't say like, okay, well, you know, because of all these things, like I understand the reason why you've responded the way you did. You know, you, you have the right to respond to this situation in a negative way because the situation is just so bad. It's not what Paul says. Paul tells them, look, you've got a lot to rejoice about. We can always reflect on the salvation that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you all know, as you get older, the years go by like this. Just turn 40. And man, I look back at the 40 years that I've lived on this earth, and I mean, just it's gone, right? goes by so quick Uh, for you high school students, college students, especially high school and middle school. You know, the things that you just, you you, you really, you really feel like these are the most important things to me. And I just, I'm going to die if I don't have them. Man, I'll tell you what. (laughs) When you step into adulthood, you'll realize how much time you actually wasted chasing these things that do not matter. And as you grow, and as we all grow, we all realize that, man, there's a lot of times that we chase things that don't matter. We spend time and energy and effort, and we grumble about things that we don't need to grumble about. Paul says here, he says, rejoice. We should be people that rejoice because God has saved us. 
He has made us His people. Now, I personally believe that in verse 5, Paul's words, uh, let your reasonableness, uh, that also would mean gentleness, be known to everyone, refers to the ladies in disagreement. Um, I don't know for sure. Uh, there's different disagreements there. It's, uh, but based on the structure here and the context of the personal address, I think, is, I think Paul is basically kind of furthering his point here that they need to work things out and show themselves unified for the sake of their gospel witness. But whether it is a general statement or a pointed statement, we learn something that is valuable. Our attitude affects our witness. Our attitude and the way that we respond to our circumstances affects our witness. Brothers, are you complaining about your home life all day at the job? Sisters, wives, are you complaining about being stuck at home with kids or the husband not giving you attention that you need to your friends? How are you living? How are you responding to negative circumstances? How do you respond to sickness? How do you respond to things that don't go your way? How is your attitude affecting your witness? See, when we are grumbling with others or even inside the church body, we're grumbling and we always have negative things to say. Are we truly rejoicing in the Lord? We're telling people around us, hey, look, we're just like you. We don't have hope. There is no hope. And we all know, look, grumbling, complaining doesn't help the situation anyway. It doesn't help at all. And Paul reminds his reader that the reason we can rejoice and be reasonable is because, guess what? The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Now, look, we don't know the exact day or time that Jesus will return. But what we do know is that the next significant event in salvific history is the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth that is. What a glorious promise that is for us. I want you to stop and think about that. The reality is, is that Jesus Christ will return. Okay? Look, he's coming back. If you remember the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, the apostles, they're, they're standing there, they're watching, they're, they're trying to figure out, like, what just happened? With everything, I mean, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of different things going on. And then Jesus is like, peace, and he goes. And then they're, they're confused. They're standing there. They're uh, probably looking at each other like, okay, well, here we go. And this angel, these two angels, it says in uh, Acts chapter 1, it says, they come to him and they say, hey, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven that you just watched, 
ascend to heaven, guess what? He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Look, that, that comfort was very particular for them there, but it's also very applicable for us now. You can rest in the fact that, look, the Lord is near. You and I, we have nothing to fear. In the final two verses of this portion of the letter, Paul gives us some insight to kind of how to deal with the, the struggles of anxiety, right? The struggles of, of wondering, like, how do I make it through the tensions and the chaos of the world around us? Um, there is something that is the antithesis of peace. That's anxiety. Anybody ever have anxiety? Nobody? All right. You can just not listen if you never have. I think everybody has, right? We've all been anxious. We all worry at times. Now, when things aren't going well, we all wonder how we're going to make it through. Some people have anxiety worse than others. But we all feel a sense of anxiousness from time to time. But listen, the Bible literally says we shouldn't. Like, we should not be anxious. Our Savior, Christ Jesus, says in Matthew 6, 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious. Paul says the same thing here. Look at verse 6. First, he gives a command. He says, do not be anxious about anything anything once again we see no exception here just as we have all been called to be the people of God we are called to trust the God who made us his people we trust that he knows what he's doing the creator knows what is best for his creation. And listen, brothers and sisters, when we trust that truth, when we rest in that truth, when we see the command that and we remind ourselves, right? Okay, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. The Bible says, don't be anxious. God has told me nothing to fear. It changes. It changes how we respond. It changes how we navigate. But then Paul gives us some specific instructions here, right? Because, hey, it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It's going to creep up. We're going to feel that pressure of anxiety. So what do we do? So how do we replace anxiety? Well, Paul tells us here, he says, but in everything. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul says, look, don't be anxious, pray. The time that you spend worrying and uh, dealing with anxiety and, and kind of wrestling with these thoughts in your head and uh, evaluating the, the worst thing that can happen. 
God says, pray. See, it's pretty plain. We either carry our own cares. We say like, no, I got this one. (laughs) Or we give them to God. And this is no way, shape, or form an encouragement to let go and let God. There's an active participation here. We don't make our requests known to God because he needs awareness of what we need. We don't make our requests known to God so we can somehow bend his will to do what's best for us. Guess what? He knows what's best for us. I tell our kids, right? Sometimes the answer to prayer is no. Sometimes it's yes, but it's always right. It's always right. Because God knows what you need. And once again, guess what? It's not about you. It's about his glory. It's about him getting the glory that he deserves. We make our requests known so that we can be free from anxiety. Paul says to make these requests by prayer and supplication. He gives kind of these two different categories. The first category here, prayer is just a a general word for uh, conversing with God, right? We we talk to God. Uh, Sometimes when we're praying at night and uh, we'll pray and Zion will say, like, I don't know what to say. You just talk to him. You talk to the Lord. What do you, he wants to hear from you is what we'll tell him. And that's the same for us, right? Sometimes we don't know what to pray. Uh, thankfully, Scripture says that when we don't know what to pray, guess what? The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And we pray and we talk. The second is a little bit more specific, where it says supplications. And this would describe an urgent request to meet a need, exclusively addressed to God. So something that is uh, praying prayers of supplication, right? You, you hear a, a, a brother who is sick, a family who is sick, and we pray on their behalf. We pray for them. We, we know we have a specific need within us. We pray prayers of supplication, and we pray for these things. Paul says that we should not only care about the act of praying, but we should also have the right attitude when we pray. He says, pray with thanksgiving. Are you praying your prayers with thanksgiving? I'm I'm talking like even on the worst days. Now, talk to God. Be real with God, right? He already knows. But in everything that we pray, in everything that we do, we should be rejoicing in the God of our salvation And praying with thanksgiving that, one, we can pray. That we have the opportunity and the ability to pray. And that because of what we read earlier, our mediator, our intercessor, Christ the Lord, he hears us. He knows us. Because Paul then provides some comfort here in verse 7. He says, so pray, don't have anxiety, pray about the things you're worried about, don't be anxious for anything, pray about everything, 
and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in everything you do. In Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. That's where we find our peace, brothers and sisters. See, God's peace is the opposite of anxiety. And listen, God's peace, his plan is better than anything you can conjure up. I mean, it's better than your best idea that just came to you while you were driving down the street and it just but I can't believe, like, I thought about this for this situation. And, hey, listen, God's plan is better than anything that you could ever determine. It protects us better than anything that we could come up with for ourselves. It guards us, he says. Guards our hearts, our being, our souls. And it guards our minds. See, see, when we pray, once again, this isn't an absent-minded, uh, let go, let God. No, it guards our minds, right? The renewal of our mind. We pray, we hear, and we remind ourselves that, man, the Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He's got this. I can trust him. See, anxiety usually leads us to taking matters into our own hands, right? You get anxious, you try to figure out, okay, what's, what, what am I going to do about this? Now, and once again, there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with, with, with saying, okay, hey, I'm going to evaluate a situation and I'm going to figure out, okay, what, what's the, the options here and, and what am I going to do with it? But in the means of coming up with our own plans in the midst of anxiety when we're uh, at the, the brink of our turmoil and we feel like we're going to break. And so we ra- like irrationally decide, okay, this is what I'll do. We think, okay, well, if I do this, it'll bring me true peace, right? Some of us fall into sin. Maybe you, you run to images, videos, different things that can help to just relieve the tension. Maybe you run to Netflix, your favorite shows. Maybe you run to alcohol or substance abuse. Maybe you, you run to certain things that are contrary to God's word and plan for your life. But we all know all those things, they always come up short. When we try to figure it out on our own, it comes up short. Charles Spurgeon is helpful as we think through this when he says, and I'll close with this quote. And he says, anxiety makes us doubt God's loving kindness. And thus our love to him grows cold. He says, we feel mistrust and thus grief the spirit of God so that our prayers become hindered and our consistent example marred and our life 
one of self-seeking. He goes on to say, He who cannot calmly lead his, lead his affairs in God's hands, but will carry his own burden, is very likely, uh, likely to be tempted to use wrong means to help himself. This sin leads to a forsaking of God as our counselor and resorting instead to human wisdom. Brothers and sisters, the question we must ask her, are we resorting to our own ways? I mean, whether that be your external relationships with others, such as Yodia and Syntyche, or your internal battle within yourself as you fight anxiety as you navigate the world around you. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you are, if you've been seeking your own way, you don't have to. Maybe you're in here and you've never confessed and professed Christ as Lord. You do not follow him as Lord of your life. And my encouragement to you would be to lay down your rebellion, call on the name of the Lord, repent and believe the gospel. That it is only Christ. If you're a seasoned Christian, you've been following the Lord for years, then encourage those around you. Help them to learn from your mistakes. Be open, honest, vulnerable. You all who are new to the walk with Christ, encourage you to seek out wiser brothers and sisters that can help you through the journey. Let us be a people who corporately rest in the peace of God. Amen? And lean on the promise that the peace of God surpasses all understanding. And he will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus alone. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. We thank you, God, that it is not dependent on our works. It is not dependent on our performance. But God, you have made a way of salvation. Lord, help us to not resort to those things that we think will satisfy. Help us to not be a people that are anxious. But help us to give our cares and to you, make our requests known to you, and trust that you will provide exactly what we need. By your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.